Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for the people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folda. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and today we're going to do something a little different. No biotechnology. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of different topics, but we're speaking with Professor Linda Bartoshuk. And uh, Dr. Bartoshuk has been uh, a colleague of mine at the University of Florida for how many years now? Mm, must be getting close to 10. Must be close to 10. But I remember when you came, but you came here before you were hired here, not just in an interview context, but you came here because you were, um, you know, a very recognizable person in the area of smell and taste. And we were kind of starting to poke around those areas. And so you, we knew you before you were a faculty member. You I mean, you visited us before you were a faculty That's member. That's true. We were, you really were brought here because of your expertise inside, not well, let's just say smell and taste, but really the the, the human psychology, well, it's not really psychology, right? It's more the physical and brain and perception side of that in the way that all of this is integrated. And in a university like Florida, where we talk a lot about fruits, vegetables, and food products, understanding that the chemistry and the psychology of the human interface is so important. And I, went and I neglected to mention a couple things. Um, Dr. Bartoshuk is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. She was recently recognized by the American Psychological Association as one of three distinguished, uh, what was the exact award? They, um, I think it Distinguished Contributions to Science, something distinguished like that. Distinguished Contributions to Science, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to make some of those someday. <laughs> well, um, so welcome, very, welcome to the podcast. So here we are. Um, so w- let's go back to the ideas of some of the uh, things that you've did really in the, was it 1970s when, when you really started to talk about the idea of psychophysics and, and, and smell and taste? No, I've done that my whole career. Basically, starting graduate school from 1960 on, taste was the field that I worked in. Um, as time has gone on, I've gotten more and more interested in working on taste pathologies because this is the way, if you don't want to do animal research, uh, and, and if animal models don't cover what you want to study, these are experiments of nature. You look at what nature does to the sense, and you learn how it works by looking at pathology. Oh, very good. So it's kind of a way of actually, it's almost like a mutant screen in genetics. It is indeed. You're, you're looking for the loss of function to understand what that function was. Exactly. And, and so what are some really good examples of that? Well, my favorite. Um, <clears throat> you don't hear too much about people who lose their sense of taste. It's thought to be fairly rare. But actually, that's not quite true. You lose parts of your sense of taste, but the taste system is wired in the brain so that if you lose a part of it, the other part takes over, compensates. It's called constancy. So many people don't know if they've had taste damage, except for one symptom that they have. They have a phantom. That is, you wake up one day, and there's a salty taste in your mouth that never goes away. That's a result of nerve damage. 
And studying that has a personal meaning for me because my father developed lung cancer when I was in college, and the worst symptom he had was that things he used to love to eat tasted metallic. Go ahead several years, and my brother also developed cancer, liver cancer, and he had taste problems as well. And I think these taste problems have a lot to do with why I wanted to work on the problem of phantoms. And so phantoms, so this idea that there's something there when there isn't is, is kind, right. of, kind of the... But this is more, this is in the brain that this is happening, or is this happening in the tongue itself? Or no, the, brain. And so nothing's going on in your mouth, but you think it's in your mouth. There are all kinds of consequences. Some people believe they have bad breath because they have a bad taste in their mouth, but the only person who's experiencing the taste is them. Wow, that's really interesting. And so, what are, so that's, those are a couple of good examples of phantoms, but how do the same kind of phenomenon, the same wiring in the brain, tell us other aspects about the way things taste when we're actually eating food or, or eating food or drinking a beverage, something like that? Well, first of all, we can make phantoms. We can create them in the laboratory so we know how they were produced. And once you know that, you start knowing about how the brain is wired. So, for example, if I get an anesthetic, like the kind you'd get from your dentist if you're having a lower tooth filled, um, seconds after the anesthetic goes in, I get a taste on the opposite side of my mouth from the anesthetic. That's a taste phantom created because the anesthesia acts like taste damage. Oh. And about 50% of the people will get a phantom like that from an anesthetic injection. Now, you're in the dentist chair. you got a funny taste in your mouth. You're going to blame a lot of things. You're probably not going to think it's the anesthetic. But the anesthetic is doing this. Once we know about this, we start learning things like interactions among sensory information in the mouth. For example, you think taste is taste, smell is smell, touch is something else. Well, in the mouth, they all interact in the brain. And taste is the queen because taste has the ability to inhibit the others. This probably started back years ago when we wanted to control taste, I'm sorry, pain in an animal that got injured. Imagine now you're an animal, you're a wild animal, and you get into a fight with another animal, and he bites you or you bite your own tongue, and now you're in pain. Every time you try to take a bite of food, it hurts. So you don't want to eat. You know what happens if you don't eat? You starve to death. <laughs> nature does not like this. So nature protects you by, if you try to eat, take a single bite, that taste input will inhibit the pain. Now, isn't that clever? Wow. That motivates eating. It keeps an animal alive. And it, it gives us a clue. Because now we know that all those different sensory modalities in the mouth are interacting. With anesthesia, we can test those interactions because we can look and see what changes when we take one nerve out. Well, I spent about 20 years doing this, and we learned a great deal about how those senses interact. Wow, that's really cool. I never, I never knew about this before. So, if you're you're using anesthesia, are you when you're applying you're applying this to different nerves? But how do you do this inside somebody's mouth? And are you in? And let's go back to like that. Uh, or is, does this tie in with that old gross picture of the tongue map where it says salty and sweet on the different parts of the tongue? Or is, you know, does it tie in with that? Well, first of all, let me tell you, the tongue map's an error. It's a translation error that goes back to the 1940s. And I love to tell this story because the guy who made the error was a psychology professor at Harvard. 
And his name was Edwin Boring, and he didn't think women should be in science. So I like to remind people that he was famous for translating German articles and making them available to Americans. Well, I learned German in college, and he made a mistake in some of those translations. <laughs> and one of the mistakes was led to the erroneous tongue map. He mistranslated a German article and made a tiny difference accidentally looked much bigger than it was. And this led to the idea that taste was different qualities represented in different parts of the mouth. It's absolutely not true. Wow. So that, so that, why is it such a part of our culture and thinking about taste? I mean, why is it that it, it penetrated so well? I think it's easy to state. You know, you've got a tongue map. Sweets on the front, bitters on the back, salty and sour on the sides. It sounds reasonable. It sounds interesting. And I've been working against this for years. And I follow, discovered the following tactic works a bit. You're at a convention, and the book dealers are all there, and they've got their books all around. Wander over, pick one up, look up taste, and say, wow, this is wrong. <laughs> and generally, they pay attention. And I think I've managed to get a few of them corrected by doing that. Well, that's good. And maybe we'll change a few minds today, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the idea of, of being able to inhibit specific nerves to so so basically you're blocking the input to the brain by by messing with the uh, uh, sensory aspect of the tongue and then this is rewiring how the brain is perceiving what's happening in other parts of uh, or other aspects of physiology in, in general but how does that how integrate with olfaction because that was the other big side of this question and are changes that are happening on the tongue affecting what we smell. They are. And this is something we've learned about mostly very recently, and I'm very excited about it because it's leading to some research that may actually have some health benefits. The, the thing about smell is you have to know first, the nose does two things. First, you sniff outside air, and that's called orthonasal olfaction. That's smell. And the odors are coming in, they're hitting some turbinate bones in your nose, and a puff goes up to the top of the nasal cavity, has to go through a tiny slit. By the way, that's why you lose smell when your nose gets stuffed up, it gets swollen. Anyway, the odors have to go through that slit, and there they reach receptors and send a message to the brain. But there's a second way that odors get in, and it makes a huge difference in our experience. When you put something in your mouth and bite into it and chew it, the odors are released. Well, as you swallow, they're forced up behind your palate and into your nose from the rear. Think post-nasal drip. That's coming down the same space that these odors are being forced up. Now the odors go up, and then they hit the same receptors as they do when you sniff. But the brain's been paying attention. And if that odor input came in from sniffing, it sends it to one area. If it came in from the mouth, you were chewing and swallowing and tasting at the same time, it sends it to a different area, and that second area also gets input from taste. Hmm. Now they interact. And weirdly enough, when that input goes up behind your palate, we call that retronasal olfaction, that's what flavor is. So when you have a bowl of chocolate pudding and you sniff it, that's smell. You put the pudding in your mouth, you chew it, swallow it, and you get the chocolate flavor, that's flavor, and that's retronasal olfaction. Now, the first one, sniffing, is not integrated with taste, but the second one, retronasal olfaction, is, and taste can influence it. <laughs> What's a really good example of something where there's a big gap between the orthonasal and retronasal? Is, is there any good example? 
I'll tell you the example we use when we're teaching kids, the jelly bean test. Pick up a jelly bean, best if you don't see it, so you don't know what its flavor is. Now, hold your nose closed, put the jelly bean in your mouth, chew it up and swallow it. Now, it's hard to swallow with your nose closed, but just tough it through and do it. Now, as you swallow, open your nose. And what will happen is, before you open your nose, the jelly bean will probably be a little sweet, maybe a little sour, but you won't know what the flavor is. The minute you open your nose, now the volatiles hit air currents. They go up behind your palate. They go into your brain, up the retronasal uh, pathway, and you know what the flavor is immediately. And that one just blows people away because they do not realize that flavor is only produced when your nose is open and you've got something in your mouth. And that's because of these volatile compounds, right? Correct. And so when you're talking about the ones that interact on the tongue, is the tongue just sensitive to a very narrow set of um, of, of chemicals like, you know, like sugars and salt, or or, or it does it have a broader uh, palate, for lack of a better term? <laughs> yeah, the tongue is not very sensitive. It's the olfactory system that's sensitive to a huge number of different molecules. Taste is the basic nutritional sense. Taste is the sense that solves problems that you have to solve very fast or you die. So taste is hardwired in the brain, and it's all organized even before you're born. The newborn baby already loves sweet, hates bitter. Two weeks later, when its salt receptors are mature, it also likes salt. It's a little iffy about sour. But the fact is, sweet and bitter are very important because sweet is the cue for glucose, which is the fuel of the brain, and bitter is the cue for poison. You generally don't want to eat things that are bitter. So our brains are wired so that we love sweet, on our first exposure to it, and we hate bitter on our first exposure to it. And smell is not like that. You have to learn to like or dislike smell. Learn to like or dislike smells. I have to think about that for a second. But like and dislike are really, um, are, are kind of res- are very emotionally based responses yeah. so that they're not based on, so this is where we start getting into the brain again, right? Yeah, and so- value. And values, affect, I mean, or, or affect. So, so you could you could have, and this is why people, some people love the sm- love a durian, like this fruit that smells like nat- rotting natural gas, and other people absolutely hate it. I mean, is, is that really what this is about? And uh, cultural cues and what we grew up with, and is, does all that play into our landscape of a given aroma? Sure does. And with an aroma, now you're talking about orthonasal olfaction, yeah. sniffing, smelling. Um, we have to learn the the meaning of it. You uh, take, there's a beautiful experiment that was done on two-year-olds. Imagine mom coming in with a two-year-old on her lap, and uh, the two-year-old is uh, looking at a a beautiful picture that has little holes in it, and there are a bunch of toys in front. So once the child picks up a toy and gets interested in it, the experimenter behind the screen squirts an odor through one of the holes. Now, there are observers through a one-way mirror watching mom's face and baby's face. And mom is going, whoa, making nasty faces if it's bad, smiley faces if it's good, and the kid is absolutely indifferent to the value of the odor, but you can tell the kid perceives it because may startle or look up okay. or get distracted for minutes. You know the child smelled the odor, but the child at two years old doesn't care, good or bad. By three, they start to care. 
And by 6'7", you're looking at a kid that probably has the world of an adult in terms of whether it likes or dislikes smells. The purpose of this is taste is there to solve problems that you have to solve right now or you die, like getting uh, glucose for fuel, avoiding poisons, getting salt to make your nurses, uh, muscles and nerves work. But olfaction is there for the things where you have a little time to learn. So if you smell a smell and you then drink milk and milk is giving you calories, um, you're going to learn to like that smell very quickly as a baby. But if you now um, uh, smell something and get sick, throw up, you're going to learn to dislike it probably in one trial. Huh. This is really cool because it ties in with other aspects of, of human psychology and, and, and what we've learned about how people respond to information, that there's some information like threats and, and, and danger, which really trigger the limbic system, you know, reptile brain, that whole thing, mm -hmm. and then other parts which we really synthesize, that really invoke executive function and, and are things that we synthesize and sort through. And is that the same with smell and taste as to where, so let's say orthonasal and retronasal or smell and taste, how they move into the brain. Is the tongue a reptile brain function and smell executive function, or am I way off here? I have never heard it said that way, but I like that. Yes, that's not far off. That tongue is there for really primitive stuff that we absolutely need, so you just build it into the brain. It's there in the circuitry. And olfaction is what allows you to be flexible and the higher you go up on the phylogenetic chain, uh, chain, the more flexible you are. Because even some smells have hardwired good and bad in really, really primitive organisms. But with humans, we're expected to learn our way around our environments. So it, your safety with regard to smell pretty much has to depend on your learning. Well, uh, let's go on to the, the idea of super tasters. Ah, so so you you really discovered this concept of of the super taster, and uh, I've seen your talks so many times, and I've tasted the little papers, and I know that they I am a super taster. Right? Bad news, but um, but maybe tying in with what we were just talking about before I go into that too deep is the. Um, change with time. When you talk about um, you know kids being uh, agnostic to the value of an aroma or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, as a kid, I couldn't stand things like broccoli. And my mom would sit there and make me finish, clean my plate, eat that stuff, and I couldn't stand it. Now I love it. And is that the value that's changing and my perception is being told that broccoli is good for me and so I'm learning that I should like it? Or is it the hardware itself is becoming differentially sensitive to compounds that were previously um, uh, offensive to my integration of that? You see where I'm going Yes, here? I do. And it's a little bit of both. Now, you're a super taster. That broccoli was bitter to you. Now, I don't know how your mom felt about it, but maybe she wasn't a super taster. <laughs> she might have been what we call a medium taster. The genetics of that are not well known. So you're tasting this green vegetable is very bitter. She wants you to eat it because she knows it's good for you, but you don't want it because it's bitter. Now, we now know how to make you like it. Let's take a little sugar, which you're hardwired to love, ah. and fat, which you learn to love very quickly because it has calories, and let's maybe put something nice, a little sugar, a little salt, maybe a little cheese on the broccoli, and you eat it and you like it. You learn to like it because these other things are good. You're getting calories in your stomach from the cheese, etc., etc. And so eventually what happens is you can override that dislike of bitter by learning there are good things. Here's the beauty. 
even after you take the good stuff off the broccoli, you've now learned to like the odor of the broccoli, the volatiles given off by the broccoli. So you're going to keep liking it, even though it's still a bit bitter to you. So wow. you want to make a kid like a vegetable? Put something good on it, and they will experience all of the attributes of the broccoli, and they will condition preferences to the broccoli itself. And even when you take the good stuff away, they're still going to like the broccoli. Wow. You know, and what's so interesting about this is, you know, what happened to me was exactly the opposite. I had a boiled, ugly, olive green, you know, just (laughs) wailed on piece of broccoli that I didn't want to eat. And with time, it would get cold. It would get mushy. So all of the other sensory stuff did exactly the opposite of what you're talking about. Rather than giving me good primers like fat, salt, and and sweet, I was getting sensory cues from texture and and maybe even temperature and uh, other things. that Were they actually making me hate broccoli more? They probably were. And this is the problem with learning preferences and aversions. They can backfire. You really want to be careful that you pick something that's loved a lot to get that condition preference. Because if you put do something to the broccoli that makes it even more disgusting, it's going to go the other way. Yeah, it's taken a long time to get me, in, to get me uh, up to speed on that stuff. Well, and there's another benefit. You lose bitter with age. So your ability to perceive bitter is slowly declining as you age. And therefore, you start to, quote, like, close quote, a lot of things that you didn't like before. And some of that is that um, you aren't learning to like it. You're learning to dislike it less. Or not even learning. Mm -hmm. You're disliking it less because it's not as noxious anymore. Uh, That's really interesting. That's really cool. When you said, you know, we lose bitter with age, I think I'm getting more bitter with age. But you're talking about the other kind of bitter. (laughs) Yeah, I'm talking about the kind in your mouth, yeah. (laughs) So let's go back to super tasters. Okay. And tell me, you know, what is a super taster? A super taster is a person who experiences taste more intensely. It's that simple. Um, Super tasters, we know a great deal about them now, and there are a lot of interesting things about them, but that's how we first discovered them. Um, I was very interested in developing methodology that allowed me to compare sensory experiences across people. Uh, That's hard, because you and I can't share experiences. But consider the following. Suppose I want to know if you're tasting something like I am. I think of something not related to taste, like maybe brightness of light. To the best of our knowledge, those are not connected in the brain. So now I take a lot of people, and I do taste comparisons on them, but I also have them compare taste to the brightness of a light. Now, all of a sudden, we discover that one group of people are comparing taste and matching it to a much, much brighter light than another group. That's how we discovered super tasters. You're saying that we can't share experiences. Right. And so talk a little bit more about that. And I I, I kind of know this a little bit, but what you're really saying, well, I'll let you describe it. What do you mean by that? Okay. Well, let me back up even a little more. When we first started coming up with psychophysical methodologies, now this is old stuff, Greek astronomers, a man named Hipparchus developed a scale for the brightness of stars, one to six. I can't remember which end was the brightest, sorry. (laughs) Anyway, Hipparchus developed a scale for brightness of stars. People have been inventing scales to measure intensity for a long time. We, We measure intensity with all kinds of things. But the purpose was to compare the stars. Or if you use a 10-point pain scale to compare the pain of, say, a headache with the pain of a broken arm. 
what about if you want to compare people, not samples? Well, now let's say we want to know whether men or women feel more pain. Um, we can talk about it, but it's not going to matter because there's no way for a male to experience what a female experiences in terms of pain. So we have to find a standard that both of them can experience that we think is, let's say the perfect standard. The perfect standard would be there's one stimulus in the world that everybody in the world experiences exactly the same. If we had that, we'd solve all of our comparison problems. We don't have that, of course. So we come, the next best thing is to pick a standard not related to what you want to compare. Now, we take the males and the females and we give them, well, let's try taste. We give them a, a bitter stimulus and we say we want you to match it to uh, the brightness of a light. And I could even give you a machine and I could let you turn a knob and the light would get brighter or dimmer. And I would say turn it until the light matches the taste. Well, in this case, on average, the women are going to turn that light to a brighter level than the men are because more women are super tasters. And that's how we figured this out. We used standards from things that were not related to taste. It seems like even that, I, mean, I, I understand conceptually, but even that seems like a bridge too far. And if, if you didn't know that it worked, I, I would still seem strange to me. Because it just seems like, you know, that everybody's uh, sensitivity to light might be different. and But you're talking about the perception. Yep. Right? That's the well, difference. Well, no, it's this. The fact is, we know everybody's perception of light varies. But the variation in the perception of light is unrelated to the variation in the perception of taste. So if we can pick two groups of people... Well, male, female are easy to, to sort into groups. And now we say, okay, you make these matches, and the matches are not the same for the two groups. We know something was different, but you're right. Suppose their taste was identical, and what was really different was their perception of light. Right. Well, yes, there's no free lunch when you do this kind of research. You could always be wrong. You could always have picked the wrong standard. And I have nightmares about this. I wake up... The sweaty in the morning, and I think, oh my God, maybe we looked at it the wrong way around. <laughs> um, we never are absolutely sure, but when you work at this year after year after year, you build a series of results that start to become very convincing. And that's how we convinced ourselves that super tasters actually experience more intense taste. But let me tell you something else interesting about super tasters. We're also now exploring methodology to measure pleasure. Super tasters get more pleasure from their favorite foods. Now this starts to get interesting because we think super tasters have different tongues, which makes taste different. We think super tasters have more taste buds. But that can't explain why they get more pleasure from a favorite food. That's got to be in the brain. So there have to be differences that make people super tasters or not that are also in the brain. And we don't know what they are. Well, even evolutionarily, why would that be a good idea? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, one can argue this way. Women are more likely to be super tasters. I have this picture of a Neanderthal tribe. Okay, Probably the head of the tribe is male. And he's got a wife. And he's going to have her go out and check if they move to a new environment, check out all the plants, because she is going to experience more bitter. She may die from this, <laughs> a small price to pay if you're a Neanderthal, but he will know if there are too many bitter compounds in the environment by having his wife check them. Maybe that's why you want people of different types. 
Oh, very interesting. That's a that's a really interesting idea. <laughs> that your that your sentries who are going to be and they're the ones bearing the children, and that's so right. that's going to be relevant to the long term sustainability of the tribe. That's right. Have, so you have have them actually be the ones testing the gathering potential of a new. That's a really interesting hypothesis. How do we test it? Where do we get some Neanderthals? <laughs> well, you know, we all have a little Neanderthal in us. <laughs> some of us more than others. Some of us more than others. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't any way to test this. And this yeah. is one of the frustrations in working on something like measurement theory, where you never get an absolute answer. You do the best you can, and you try to relate the scaling to real-world phenomena where people have opinions and try to make it all make coherent sense. But the truth is... It's like a house of cards. It could all collapse. Well, but aren't there some objective standards that we could use, like fMRI or something like that, where you look at the brain's response to, um, to a given stimulus, and now you can say, you know, here's how much input there was. Yeah. I mean, does that work? No. And here's why. <laughs> fMRI, it's as bad. You look at two signals in a brain, you don't know what that means. You don't know if one larger signal meant more intense experience. Oh, so you have okay. to check it with psychophysics. But the psychophysics is already open to question. In fact, this is one of my biggest gripes about FMR, FMR research. People think they're learning something because it seems to be coming absolute from the brain. The same problems exist in the brain. You don't know what those signals denote in terms of the person's experience. I, I understand that now. I, un I can see how that's a mistake because you don't know what the threshold is that causes an experience, how much signal in the brain is actually causing. So in other words, small amount of signal, small amount of fMRI visibility right. could be triggering a profound experience where something with a very large signal is a less experience because of the way it's integrated. It could be, and it could be that across two people, exactly the same signal doesn't mean the same. So uh, we'd like to know, and if you believe that I'm solving some of these problems in psychophysics, we can use those solutions to test the fMRI and maybe convince ourselves a little more. In fact, people are doing that now. And so how are um, uh, industries using this information to change our perception and liking of their products? That's a good question. I wish I knew, but you know, most industries are a little careful about sharing their information. Uh, they keep it quiet because they see a competitive advantage in it. Uh, so I honestly don't know how many I industries are using, like Super Taster. I can give you a little bit of information because I've had people call me from um, wineries. I actually had a winemaker call me some years back and asked if he could have some pro papers. These are these bitter papers yeah. that taste incredibly bitter to super tasters and not at all to people like me. By the way, I'm not a super taster. And I said, well, why do you want me to send you the papers? He said, well, I'm going to fire everybody who isn't a super taster. And I said, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Because that's just a matter of telling you if there's a bitter off taste in the wine or something. But you've got to taste test everybody because they're all your, your clients. Well, I don't know if I convinced him, but I didn't send him the papers just in case. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting example. That's it's a really good example. And so is there anything else I should ask you about at this point, about like what's going on in research now? Or like, is there some, well, like, give me a good question that I could ask yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, what are we doing here at UF right now okay. uh, the, about interaction between volatiles and taste? Okay. We're running out of time. No, we're doing all right. I mean, it's fine with me. Um, here we go. So what's happening right now in the laboratories here at University of Florida? 
something very exciting. Uh, we have a lot of different disciplines represented at the University of Florida. It's one of the advantages of being big. It turns out that we have people who understand taste and smell, but we also have people who understand vegetables and fruits. We would like to be sure that Florida growers can sell fruits that are going to be really highly liked. Okay? So we're going to try to find out if they're liked, and if they're not liked, can we make them liked better? Well... It turns out that volatiles perceived retronasally interfere with the taste in the brain, and some of them enhance sweet. So, for example, if we put the right volatiles into a sugar solution, we make it sweeter. Now, you don't necessarily have to perceive the volatiles. It's just the sugar seems to get sweeter. So you can imagine you could use this technology to sweeten anything and reduce your dependence on sugar and artificial sweeteners. That's really great, because and so, but you said that you don't notice the volatiles are there, but they're volatiles that are there that are still sending a message to the brain, but it's not one that's triggering a sense of perception of olfaction. Uh, of olfaction. Okay. The interesting thing is that we caught on to this because of fruit. We analyzed fruit and found out that something like a strawberry has more than thirty volatiles in it that enhance sweet. Each one of them just does a little bit of enhancement, but they add up. And you can end up making one strawberry three times as sweet as another by increasing the volatiles that enhance sweet. Yeah, that's been really, and it's been a foundation of what we've been working on for a few years now, where we now know, and this is a paper we're submitting now, we now know the genetic location of 50 different genes responsible for the synthesis of 50 different volatiles. And, uh, and we're now sorting those out one at a time biochemically. We did this genomically, but we've already sorted out like gamma decalactone, methylenthanolate. We, we know where what the genes are that regulate their metabolism, or at least aspects or steps in their metabolism. So all of this work has really been... Um, you know, tied together and really has been informative because now our breeders are making better tasting strawberries. Yeah. You're not going to have to add sugar to your strawberries. Yeah, they, and they don't have any more in them either. That's they, right. But they still maximize what is there. That's correct. And so when people talk about, well, strawberries don't taste sweet anymore, the one that they get that now has a little bit of fruity and floral aroma will have the perception of being a sweeter berry, even in the absence of sugar. Correct. And you saw the same thing with tomatoes. Tomatoes, yes. Not as many volatiles in tomatoes, because tomatoes doesn't, doesn't get as sweet as strawberry does. We've seen the same thing in oranges. And we actually found some volatiles in oranges that um, seemed to suppress bitter. We got very excited about it. Turns out those volatiles are actually enhancing the sweet. And it's the extra sweet that's inhibiting the bitter. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, very backwards. And so at this point, let's just take a break. We'll take a few minutes and then um, we'll be back on the other side with the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Professor Linda Bartoshuk and talking about smell and taste. And on the other side of the break, we'll talk about her experiences in science uh, through the years and especially as a woman moving through the system. This is the Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in a second. The Statistic Show, that most podcasts end by episode 12. Somehow this masterpiece has managed to evade the cruelties of host apathy and audience rejection, now rushing towards 200 episodes in four years. Our fifth year begins June 13th, 2019. So what's next? Instead of dialing it back, we're dialing it up. Watch for additional new podcasts, new exciting media, 
and great stories about science. Most of all, thank you for all of the kind words, great suggestions, and overwhelming patience as we learn by doing in podcast space. Most modern podcasts have producers, directors, web support, and audio engineers. This one has one person doing all of that work. He even does the funny voices in the intermissions. Sometime in the summer of 2019, we'll host our one millionth download. Sure, Joe Rogan or Adam Carolla do that in a day, but they are talented entertainers. Here, a marginally relevant scientist with a desire to teach takes a little bit longer to hit those long-term benchmarks, but still relatively amazing. So thank you, listener. Thank you for spreading the word and telling others about this podcast. Your efforts are the wind under our wings, the gas in our tank, and the big stupid Fred Flintstone foot on the accelerator. Thank you for listening. We really do appreciate your kind interest. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, we're here with Professor Linda Bartoshuk at the University of Florida, um, on site, talking in her office. Um, and in the beginning, we talked about her research and the work through the years. But it, there's a lot of other stories that happen that are separate from the research, mostly in her experiences growing up as a woman really ex- excited about science and moving from even from high school and college, um, and her, some of her experiences that she's uh, experienced through the years. So tell me a little bit about... Uh, some of the some of the challenges you went through early on. I mean, you, where, where you were where you were raised and the, the town and and how they felt about women really getting excited about science. Well, I grew up in Aberdeen, South Dakota, a little town, twenty five thousand, and women interested in science were curiosity in those days. Um, I remember an experience from junior high, and I, I've got to be honest with you here, and I want you to think this is going on now. I'm 80 years old, and when I was in junior high, this is probably a long time ago compared to many of your listeners, but in that era, I remember we had a career night in junior high. Each of us wrote down on a 3 by 5 card what we wanted to be, and the school got us a person in that field to interview. Well, I wrote down that I wanted to be an astronomer, and I got scheduled to interview a secretary. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to college, I got to high school, and I wanted to take physics and chemistry and algebra and trigonometry. And I was told by my guidance counselor that these were really unrealistic choices for me and that um, I really shouldn't sign up for those. And so we negotiated a deal, and I agreed to take typing and bookkeeping in return to be allowed to take the math and science. And i got to tell you, that typing has come in really (laughs) handy. (laughs) You never would have guessed, right? I never would have guessed. Anyway, when when I was in those classes, I'm trying to remember, I think I was the only girl in chemistry. I believe there might have been one more girl in algebra. I certainly was the only girl in physics and trigonometry. But the faculty didn't treat this as anything wrong. I mean, they treated me just like they did the guys in the class. And so I got a very, very good education. So I don't don't begrudge them that. And I don't remember being upset about any of that either. I just remember, well, they just don't understand. I, I really like these courses. And I really want to take these because they're fun. 
And by the time I got to college, I was beginning to get a little smarter about the fact that it wasn't a good idea not to let girls take the things they wanted to take. And I wanted to be an astronomer. I mean, I went to Carleton College, and they had an observatory. I was really very excited. So I majored in astronomy. And I think I was probably end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year, and I discovered that women couldn't use some of the big telescopes. They were banned from the big telescopes. That was when I remember getting mad. And my roommate and I sat down and went through the college catalog and thought, what can I switch to? Switch my majors. Something, because I've taken all this math and science, i got to get credit for it. Well, psychology was willing to give me credit for all the math and science. All I had to take was two years of the required psych courses, and I would leave with uh, a, a major in psych. Well, I'd actually already finished the minors in math and astronomy, but I did that, and I fell in love. I just loved it, and I loved in particular a branch of psychology called psychophysics, which is the study of the senses. So I started out as an astronomy student with our projects at night, with our telescopes looking up at the various stars, and learned then about the Greek astronomers who used to measure the intensity of a star. And let me tell you a wonderful story from that. It turns out there's a kind of star called a Cepheid variable that pulses. You watch in the sky, and one night it's brighter than another night. And the Greeks paid attention to that, and they they tallied it. The Ptolemy's Almagest tallied all those Cepheid variable pulsations. Well, it took a female astronomer much, much later in time to relate that to the actual energy production of the star. And we learned that, in fact, the pulsation of the star was related to its absolute brightness that it's energy production. Well, now think of this. When you look at a star, it's far away and it's dim. But if you were closer to it, it would be brighter. That's the inverse square law. And it turns out that the distance the star is from us is related to its uh, absolute brightness. But if we watch a Cepheid variable pulse, we can calculate its absolute brightness and we see its apparent brightness. Inverse square law, we calculate the distance. And that's how we knew the size of the universe. It took astronomy and psychophysics. I never knew that. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Well, I learned that as an astronomer, and I and and, and it made me want to learn the psychophysics of sensory uh, uh, processing. But my my uh, the, uh, department chair was a taste person. He'd learned got his PhD in taste, so I followed his lead and got my PhD in taste with the same mentor. So you were you were um, your PhD then was in taste. What was your exact project? Um. <laughs> Listen, I, I told this to my mother's bridge club, and they really were not impressed. It was the taste of water. It turns out that water isn't just a solvent. It actually produces taste responses, and that can produce tremendous confusion, theoretically. And I actually got to work on that problem, and I got to be a person who got to sort out some of that confusion. That's really cool, because I know this is true. When I get distilled water, like super filtered and all mm -hmm. that stuff, I don't like it. It's bitter, isn't it? Well, yeah, I like some stuff in it. Yeah, you know? and, and if yeah. there's a little salty, a little salt, uh -huh. or something going on. And then it's essentially tasteless. That's because distilled water, your, your taste receptors are adapted to saliva, which has a fair amount of salt in it. And when you sip distilled water, it pulls the salt off to the re of the receptors, and it releases inhibition on the bitter receptors, and they fire to the brain. Your brain thinks the water's bitter. Now, you do that with a cat, 
and a cat has even more of these fibers that respond to oh, bitter. So I thought you meant taste a cat. No, 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 no. This is your, your pet cat. And it's a real problem because the cat does not have very many fibers that respond to sweet. It has a lot of fibers that respond to water as bitter. So if you give a cat distilled water with sweet in it, it'll taste bitter to the cat. It doesn't know it's tasting sweet. The cat will over-drink, get sugar, become dehydrated. And I had a terrible time with that when I was working as a graduate student because I was studying cats and I made them sick from the sucrose. And we realized it was because they were tasting the water. Wow, that's really fascinating. <laughs> so when you went from there, you finished PhD. Yeah. And what year did you finish, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, no, it was 1966. So 66, just to give people more of a yep, context. Yep. And so then from there, did, did you apply for faculty positions right away? Or where, well, where did you go Well, the truth is my mentor um, didn't have... Uh, a lot of confidence in women in science. How can I say this? He got better. He really did get better. But at the time, he found jobs for all of the guys in the class, but not for me. So I hunted up my own postdoc, and I ended up going to the Natick Army Labs. Um, sounds strange, but the Natick Army Labs was the uh, essentially related to the old Quartermaster Corps, and all of the Army's purchase of food went through the Natick Army Labs, so they were very interested in taste. So I spent a few years there having an absolutely wonderful time doing the best basic research of my career, because in those days, Army Labs spent a lot of money on basic research. So after your time in the Army Labs, what took you someplace else? Well, um, I have to tell the truth. I had a blind date. And the blind date was with a physicist from Yale. Um, he showed up at my door, and I had to admit, I was thinking about this lately, I said to him, I said, this is really embarrassing because I cannot remember your name. And he said, my name is Charles, uh, my mother calls me Charlie, and nobody I like calls me Chuck. <laughs> Instant. Uh, I was smitten. <laughs> and I married him and moved uh, to New Haven, Connecticut. I had to get a job, and I got a job at the John B. Pierce Foundation, which is a research foundation, and a year later I got an appointment at Yale. And so, so here you are in Yale, and so did you study the same type of uh, psychophysics and taste and smell? Yes, I did. Um, uh, actually, I got very interested in genetic variation. One of my colleagues at the Pierce Foundation mentioned to me one day that um, nobody would studied genetic variation. There was one, uh, one, what do we call it, taste blindness. There was a bitter compound that some people could taste and some couldn't. But nobody used modern psychophysics to study it. So I started doing that. And that's what got me interested in developing methodology to compare people. Because when you're dealing with people who are genetically different, they're not going to have the same experiences. And so I had a problem and had to develop this new methodology. Uh, then that's really an important part that people forget all the time that I think when I relate to, when I talk about different phenomenology, I always think about the genetic overlays, is always how I always describe it, mostly because of conversations I've had with you, that this is something that we just undersell. You yeah. know, the, amount of, the amount of diversity of the sensor itself 
and and not just the compound that's being tested. Yes, yes. And and that's and that's really been an important part of, of, of thinking about a lot of different questions in the genetics and environment interactions in plants and everything. But that, I'm kind of going off the track here a little bit. When we go back to your time there at Yale, so you're starting out in the 19 early 70s, maybe or late yeah. 60s. And what's the environment like as a woman professor wow. in a science department? <laughs> well, um, I remember the day that I was pregnant with my first child and the director of the Pierce Foundation stopped me in the hall, name is James Hardy, an expert on thermoregulation, and he said, you know, we're going to be so sorry to lose you. And I really didn't know what he meant. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, well, of course, you're going to resign and take care of your baby. And I said, no, I'm going to keep working. And he said, quote, women like you are going to destroy Western civilization. Now, if he just said that, that wouldn't have been too bad. But he also refused to allow me to submit a grant. Without a grant, I couldn't get funding for my research. Um, he also was verbally abusive um, quite frequently. And I actually decided that I really would have to leave. So I went to Yale to talk to the provost of sciences to see if I could get a job. But I didn't tell him why I was there. I just said I was just looking around. And, um, he went home and told a neighbor that I'd been to see him. And the neighbor, um, a woman who worked at the Pierce Foundation, assumed that I had turned Hardy in to Yale and told them what he'd said to me and reported that as fact to Hardy. And he decided to fire me. Um, when I realized what had happened, I asked him to call the provost because I told him I hadn't said anything. And he got very worried and realized that I hadn't said anything. I said, well, if you won't call the provost, I will. So I did. I got an apology from Yale, a promotion, and a raise at the Pierce Foundation. Now, I want to point out here, there's no moral to this story. I should have turned him in, and I didn't. And because I didn't, I got rewarded. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. In that era, if you tried to complain, it was death. And I knew that. I knew better than to complain. But it was interesting that because the director of the Pierce Foundation thought I might sue, he did all these things that were actually very nice for me and were great for my career. I submitted a grant, and I got it. And I was off and running. Um but um, I, it, it's it's awkward because I should have complained and I didn't. But was that? But that's very much the culture at the time too. At the time, and, if you and, wanted to survive, that's what you did. Yeah, you 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 kept quiet and did your job. And yeah. and, and and what what how else did that change through the years though? I mean, I know that that you know things we think are better now, but in that road to get to there, were there other times that you experienced? Because you were a woman in science in a really male-dominated area, were there other uh, significant barriers that you felt through that time? Well, one of the nice things, certainly my peers were not a barrier. They were wonderfully supportive. NIH was not a barrier. Um, I felt I had a fair shot at getting a, a, a grant like everybody else. It seemed to me the biggest problem um, were administrators. I remember when two men who were really junior to me got promoted ahead of me, and I was very upset, and I stalked off to the chairman's department to complain, and I said, it's not fair. Um, I'm a senior to them. I should get promoted first. And he said, you're right. And that sort of set me back a bit, and he said, uh, the Pierce Foundation is known for discriminating against women. And it was. 
And he said, it would cost me politically a great deal to intervene. So he said, you're just going to have to sit back and wait your turn. You'll get promoted, but you're just going to have to wait. And I remember leaving his office, and I I still remember standing at the door, turning around and saying, wait a minute, I came in here really angry, and you didn't give me anything. And I'm leaving happy. And he smiled, and he said, I'm a very good chair. But, of course, he did give me something. He validated my feeling that it wasn't fair. And that was worth more to me than the raise and the promotion. Yeah, I guess it, it you know it's it's a small victory in some ways because at least you understand at least you know that somebody who is in that administration at least is listening. Yeah, and at least is but they're also probably just as as um, inhibited and handcuffed to be able to do anything about the systemic problem of discrimination. Yes. He made that very clear. And I did get promoted. I had to wait a couple of years, but I did get promoted. And I do remember being almost annoyed. It was an, you know, I mean, I fought for it and was irritated over it. And when I finally got it, I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, because, well, because that was the cherry on the Sunday at that point, right? I, I guess mean, you know, so. You I knew you would, so. But that's, that's, this is an interesting question, just maybe for other people who are maybe going through this now. I mean, you know, women in science or others may be facing similar, you know, barriers. Is, did this trigger in you kind of like a more of a defeated feeling that, well, I, it ain't going to happen, so it ain't, it's not going to happen? Or did it trigger like the fight or flight, where you really had this rush and said, I'm just going to overproduce and just crush this? You know, it was the fight in me. It slowly dawned on me how much I'd let pass in the past. I actually went back and gave a talk at my at Brown, my graduate school, and then the women at Brown had really gotten active, and they wanted to see me, and I met with them alone, and they said, well, what happened to you? And I told them, for example, when I was a graduate student, I didn't get the same stipend men did. Um, we all had fellowships, and they got a stipend uh, to add to theirs, and I didn't. And at the time, I thought, well, it's really not fair, but you know, what am I going to do? As I talked to them about it, I started getting really mad about it. And uh, I got madder and madder, and then really became an activist at Yale. Uh, and it was, those days were fun. I mean, it, I have to tell you, I thought Yale handled it really, really well. They um, put me on committees and made me face the difficulty of making some of these uh, decisions. And I got to see from the university's point of view how hard it is somehow to to meet everybody's requests at the same time and to do good. And it probably made me a more reasonable person. But fortunately, there was a very good group of active women, and we were we were real firebrands in those days. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> you? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people would say it is better now, and we're sensitive to these ideas, and we've spent a lot of time ensuring and double-checking ourselves to make sure that these barriers are not there, and I think we still sometimes fail. You know, are there some examples that, ways we could actually do better? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of ways we can do better. And I'll tell you one of the things. When somebody says to you, women like you are going to destroy Western civilization, that's a smack in the face. It's not too hard to interpret. What is harder for women today is the subtlety. Not being absolutely certain if something happened to you because you were female uh, or because somebody just didn't like you or whether it just wasn't your turn. And frankly, dealing with that overt sexism was a lot easier than dealing with some of the subtleties where you're just never sure. Yeah, I can understand that because you you don't know if if it is a random 
just is the way it is. Right, you know, your right. number didn't come up or whatever. Or if it is because of the fact that you're a woman or whatever, you know, whatever, That's whatever. Right. And, and that is a real challenge. But you know what you have to do? The answer to that is data. You got to get numbers, and you got to look at things collectively, and you've got to see if you can draw logical, logical arguments about whether there wasn't any other uh, thing to explain this but discrimination. Um, and I don't know how much of that is going on here at University of Florida, but I was very involved with that at Yale, and the truth is I got kind of burned out. It's very, very hard to work on some of these things because things don't get better very fast, and it can get quite depressing. But I've seen some things at the University of Florida that have made me decide that it's time to get back into the fight. And, I, and I'm with you on that. I think when I moved into administration, one of the big surprises I had was the number of women that came to me and said, you know, I have a problem, and here's the problem I have. And uh, no one has taken this seriously and other people I've talked to. And that now that I was in a position of leadership, maybe they knew me from before and knew that I would at least take them very seriously, that we were able to at least validate for them that there is a problem. And even if the system didn't solve it or didn't or chased it and found no you know, evidence, to them it was real. And at least I gave them that, you know, and ties in with what you're saying earlier. But I was really surprised. There were probably four or five cases that within the first six months of being in administration, people came forward. Yeah. And so it really does show that this is here and that sometimes we're not being sensitive enough in an administrator or leadership role to those problems. Well, I've begun paying much more attention to uh, the junior women on the faculty and students and sometimes saying to them, I'm interested in these issues, and I'm going to keep anything you tell me confidential. And I have been able to elicit the complaints I didn't know about before that, and it worries me. So I think it may be time for the faculty to take an independent stand here, and I mean put together a committee to look into some of these problems without the sanction of the university. Because I don't think you really want them appointing the people who are going to be on this committee. I think we self-form and we write a report. Because one of the things about universities you can count on, tremendous depth of conscience. If you make your case, an awful lot of people who are neutral will listen to you and take a stand. Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent point. And then it's something that, that should be done from the side of the institution itself. But what can women in science, especially early career women, maybe even graduate students, what can they do to, what steps can they take to proactively um, deal with issues when they feel that there's discrimination or harassment? I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I wish I had a better answer for you. Um, my experience at Yale, where I was on sexual harassment committees, I chaired committees that had activities like this, and i got to tell you, I get the feeling that no matter how hard people work, it often ends up badly for everyone. And one of the answers was given to us by a, a woman at MIT. I'm sorry, I'm blocking on her name, but she began a lot of work at MIT, and she said, intervene earlier. What you want to do is try to fix problems before they get to be problems that require anything formal. Informal resolution. And sometimes this is as simple as um, being very honest with somebody about how you perceive it. Of course, that can also backfire. Uh, 
one thing I do want to recommend to women who feel they have a complaint is talk to someone you trust and register that complaint before you do anything in the bigger outside world. Because the worst thing that can happen is that someone decides to retaliate and you have not registered your complaint so it doesn't look like retaliation. You want to be very, very careful. And so if we don't have someone at UF who does this, but I think we do, we have ombuds people here. And I believe that's a solution worth trying as a first step. These people generally are taking things in confidence and understand how the university works and maybe can give you some smart advice. Um, the other thing, I wish I didn't have to say this, pick your mentor carefully. Find out if there's stories already out there about a mentor and try very hard to avoid somebody who's got a history. Well, that's probably really good advice. It really is, it is good advice. Uh, I, you know, there's many different people throughout you know the, the years I've worked with who, you know, the stories were out there. You know, and it was kind of kind of weird and creepy. You know, and but I, I I believe that some of that exists. And I think another thing that you touched on was, um, and I and I think the other variable in this equation is I do think that men are changing too, and I can say with great certainty that if a woman came to me and said, you know, you you did this and I thought it was way off base or the way that you did this or whatever, um, the way you said this, the way you described it, it would break my heart <laughs> to know that. Yeah. And so it would, you would see adjustment immediately. Yes. yes. And so that's the idea of being open and honest with people when right. you do cross a line. You know, and, and I think that at one time that wouldn't be a good thing because of the retaliation, because of the other problems that could come from it. But I do think that people are becoming a little more sensitive and a little bit more careful so, and, and, and don't want to cross that line. So yeah. when they do, you correct it. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think the world is changing. And I think in, in many times, men are very hurt by this, especially if you have an older man who lived in an earlier era where certain behavior was quite acceptable. And I think of perhaps Biden ran into this. And then the behavior doesn't become acceptable anymore, like the Me Too movement, and everybody's getting really angry. You have to to be very careful about holding people to standards that are very old. The world has changed. People are changed. And you got to give people room for change. And I don't believe in judging them based on really, really old philosophies. Well, you have to boil it down to intent. Yep. And, and what, what, are they, what are they really trying to do here? And if they are really being harassing, then that's a harassment. Yep. But you have to somehow, you know, and, and, and you, you don't want to give a pass for bad behavior, but you have to understand where it comes from. Yes. And I think there's some nuance there. And in the world of, um, you know, uh, black and white and, uh, you know, in, in immediate social media assassination for bad behavior, we're, we're not allowing for that room for nuance. Right. We're not. And I think that, that it actually works against us in some ways. You have to let people change. And you have to acknowledge change. And help them change yes. in positive yes. ways, and I think that was the big that was a big thing I learned through administration and leadership is how do we, you know, not smack someone on the wrist and say you're wrong, but take them by the hand and say let me show you how we do it right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's been a really important part of this. I want to be in your department. 
Uh, me too. <laughs> well, th- you know, Dr. Bartoshek, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I hope we can do this again someday, maybe next time over a sandwich, and we'll pick a really cool topic and take it apart. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, you know the drill. Um, the more uh, reviews we have, the more you share this podcast, the more downloads we get, and the more we share these exciting stories of science. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.